The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. This morning we're looking at a short section from Hebrews chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find this in the Bibles in front of you on page 1001. And as you're turning there, let's remember where we've been and what's happening in, in the book of Hebrews. We know that the book of Hebrews is written to Christians and particularly Christians who are facing temptations to compromise their faith in Christ. On the one hand, it seems that moderate persecution seems to be at play, putting pressure on them to loosen their grasp on Christ and perhaps raising questions in their mind about his ability to save and protect his people. On the other hand, false teaching. It's emphasizing the glory of the Old Testament and Judaism before Christ seems to be threatening to lure them away from their salvation in Jesus. And as you and I know from experience, and maybe your experience is with a job, or maybe it's with a a school, or maybe it's something as simple as your cell phone service, if something is not very good where you're at right now, and someone comes along offering you a better option, there's a temptation to jump ship and head in a different direction. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to remind these believers that Jesus is better than anything else. We started to hear that last week or the last two weeks as Pastor Kiefer took us through Hebrews chapter 1, noting that Jesus was better than the angels. Pastor Kiefer noted that Jesus was inherently better than the angels as the very radiance of the glory of God, that his redemption is better than the angels since Jesus himself made purification for sins, that his royalty was better than the angels since he is the Son of God anointed on the throne forever. And that the angels themselves recognize his superiority by worshiping him. And then as we turned into chapter 2 in the first few verses, Pastor Kiefer showed us that if the message declared by angels was reliable and we couldn't escape judgment if we disregarded the message from angels, how much more will the gospel declared by Jesus confirmed by signs and wonders from God, be reliable truth that we must listen to and obey if we are going to escape judgment. That's where we are as we arrive at Hebrews 2, verse 5. And in these verses, verses 5 through 9, the author is going to give us his final reason for why Jesus is better than the angels. So if you'd follow with me as we read Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Now, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet." 
Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. God, we thank You for Your Word that You've given us. We thank You for these words that You have given us. And we pray that Your Spirit would speak to us this morning and encourage us in the glory of our Savior Jesus. We pray this for His sake. Amen. I think we all know the experience. There's often times in life where we're trying to learn something and we can see the end result of where we're trying to get to or what the final result is, but we just can't figure out how to get there. And maybe for some of you, it's trying to figure out how to change the settings on your phone. And your son or granddaughter perhaps changes the settings for you and you say, well, the settings are changed. Great, I have no idea what you did or how you got there, but they're changed. That's good enough. For me, I experienced this with Knitting. I watch those long poles, they kind of go in and out and all around, and I have no idea what's happening there, but a beautiful scarf comes out, and I say, great, someone knows what they're doing, it's a great product. Well, at first, I think when we read these verses in Hebrews chapter 2, it's easy to to seem a, a bit like that. The author is clearly saying that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. He's clearly saying that he has died on our behalf, but there is a very close and carefully argued logic in these verses And it can seem a bit complicated to to follow exactly what he's saying. But these verses are very precious, and they magnify Jesus. And so I want to walk carefully through the argument of these verses this morning. I want to notice three things. First, the argument that the author makes from the Old Testament. Second, his explanation of this argument. And third, his concluding reminder of what Jesus has done for us. So let's start with the argument that the author makes from the Old Testament. Remember the context here. In verses 1 through 4, the question we were asking is, how do we escape judgment? Whose word do we listen to in order to escape judgment? Is it the word given by angels, or is it the word given by Jesus that leads us to escape judgment? And so the author uh, jumps in right in verse 5 to give us kind of the main point of his, his last argument here, and it's this. When the world to come arrives, when judgment day arrives, it's not angels who are going to be on the throne. It's not angels who have the power to declare us innocent or offer us life. Because when judgment day comes, they aren't the ones that God has given authority to. Now, just as a a brief review for some terminology, you may remember that the New Testament consistently divides all of history into two periods. There's this age and the age to come. Or there's this world and the world to come. And this world refers to the world as we have known it since the fall. A world that is bound under sin. A world that's waiting for God's salvation to come. The world to come is the day that we're waiting for. The day that will come when all God's promises are fulfilled. When God's Messiah is ruling on the throne. When everything's subjected to His rule and Judgment Day comes. And the New Testament consistently declares that this world to come has started because Jesus is risen from the dead. 
but it hasn't fully arrived because he has not come again so that all of God's promises are perfectly fulfilled. So that's the terminology of the world to come as we look ahead. It started with the resurrection of Christ, but has not fully arrived. And so the question is, when this judgment day comes, who will have the authority of judgment? And the author's point is, while angels may have a significant and powerful role in this age, in this world, they are not the ones who have authority when the world to come arrives on the final judgment day. The question is, who will have authority? And rather than just tell us, and sometimes we think, well, come on, author of Hebrews, why don't you just tell us? But instead, the author of Hebrews takes us back to the Old Testament and gives us evidence of where God has talked about who will have authority on the last day and the days to come. And the quote here is from Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And if you were to turn back to Psalm 8, you would remember that this psalm begins by declaring the majesty and the glory of God, particularly as seen in creation. And as he magnifies God for his glory in creation, he stops and marvels that the God of this power and of this glory would care for man and pay attention to man. It says, When I looked at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. See, the author of Hebrews is saying, God has already given us a clue that we shouldn't be looking to angels for our hope. If everything is in subjection to man's feet, then it is man, or at least a man, who will be crowned with authority when God's purposes are fulfilled. But maybe we say, okay, time out, wait a second, man... We don't see everything in subjection to man's feet, to mankind. And so we need to pause here and and look at verses 8 and 9 carefully, where the author of Hebrews gives us an explanation for this argument. He explains this very carefully in verses 8 and 9. And the large question would have been very obvious in the first century. It's probably obvious to you now. And the question is this. It sure doesn't look like man is crowned with glory and honor and that everything is in subjection to man's feet. You say, I've lived a few years. I've, I've seen how things work. There's wars. There's failures. There's sin. Maybe we look down the row and say, I sure hope things aren't in subjection to his feet. Um, and we think mankind doesn't seem to be filling this. And maybe the readers of Hebrews would add, we're rejected and persecuted. We're not on a throne. Things aren't in subjection to us. How does this verse And Psalm say that all things are in subjection to mankind. And the author of Hebrews acknowledges this. You see what he says in verse 8. He says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to man, but, and here's the explanation, we do see him, we do see one man, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And he is crowned with glory and honor All things are in subjection to his feet. He's the one that Psalm 8 is talking about. He's the one who fulfills what the psalm is saying. 
Now, pause for just a second, and I hope you have your Bibles open uh, and are looking at verses 8 and 9 here, because the words him and his are used throughout these verses, and there's some vagueness about who all these hymns are talking about, and we have to understand who the hymns are talking about to really understand the argument. In fact, because of the vagueness, there's a little bit of a dust-up between commentators as to how we should interpret all of these, Um, and, and there's really two options. The question is, in verse 8, is him talking about mankind in general? Remember the psalm? What is man that you care for him? Is, is this talking about mankind in general? Uh, or is it talking about Jesus in particular? Now, are we, are we talking about Jesus? If, if the him in verse 8 is talking about Jesus specifically, then the argument goes like this. Everything is in subjection to Jesus. Now, at present, we don't see Jesus ruling over everything. This world still seems a bit chaotic and sinful. We don't see Jesus on the throne, but we know that he is. So that's one possibility. If the hymn is talking about mankind in general, then the argument goes like this. The psalm says everything is in subjection to mankind, but it sure doesn't look like everything is in subjection to mankind in general. Ah, but everything is in subjection to one man, Jesus. And I think if we look at the grammar of this sentence, the second option is by far the better interpretation. The but in verse 9 gives us a contrast between the two hymns. So I think what we hear is the author of Hebrews making this point. The psalm says everything is in subjection under mankind's feet. We sure don't see that now though, but we do see one man, Jesus Christ, who is crowned with glory and honor, and it's all under his feet. My study Bible summarized it this way. I thought it was helpful. It said, Though the human race generally has not fulfilled God's plan to put everything on earth under man's feet, there is one man who is fulfilling God's great plan, who is fulfilling Psalm 8, and that is Jesus himself. That's the argument here. And so if we step back into Hebrews 2, kind of look at the big picture and say, okay, what's the author's point? What what do we have here? And the author of Hebrews is saying this, The authority and the power of all things belongs to man. Not mankind in general, but to a specific man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honor. He is the one with the power of life and death. And so it's his word we need to listen to if we are going to escape judgment. And you can sort of hear the the, the wheels turning in the author of Hebrews' minds. And he says, why would we go to angels to escape judgment. Going to angels would be like a man who's been charged with a crime, who walks into court and wants to plead his case and runs up to the bailiff instead of the judge. What good is that going to do? It's the judge who has the power. It's Jesus who is on the throne and has the power of life and death. His word is the one we need to listen to. And as I think about this argument, I'm reminded of what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. Remember, he's talking to them and he says, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has pointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I don't know every one of you individually who's here this morning. I don't know what you have thought about Jesus There are plenty of theories about who Jesus is and how to respond to him. But will you hear what the author of Hebrews is saying? He is saying Jesus lived as a man in history. 
He was a man who walked among us, but he was a man unlike any other man. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He did what no other man had ever done. He calmed storms with a word. He raised the dead to life. And then he himself died. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, declaring that he was going to the right hand of God until he would come again to judge the world. And that salvation from judgment, escape from the judgment we deserve for our sins, can only come by putting our faith in him for salvation. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, set aside your angels, set aside your powers and authorities, set aside your government, set aside the things in this world that would offer you hope and success. None of that matters. We will not escape judgment unless we listen to the word of this man, Jesus Christ. So the question for us this morning is, will we listen to this man, Jesus? He is the one who offers us life or death. And he is the only way that we can escape judgment that we deserve. Well, the author has given us his argument that man, not angels, is on the throne in the world to come. And he's explained his argument by showing that Jesus is the man on the throne. But maybe someone would ask, well, how exactly did Jesus, a man, get to this position of being crowned with glory and honor and have everything under his feet? And so in the last part of verse 9, the author concludes... He concludes verse 9 with a reminder of what Jesus has done. Look there at verse 9. Why is it that Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here we have all the glory of the gospel packed into a half sentence. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. So that he might take death and we might not have to. Jesus became a man to identify with you and me. And since he lived the perfect life, life and not death was his just reward. But Jesus set aside his reward and suffered in our place, died in our place. And God responded by accepting his sacrifice, declaring him innocent by raising him from the dead, and then setting him on the throne at the right hand of the majesty of heaven because of his obedience all the way to death. Now, this is a wonderful story. But if we have to make sure we understand why this story is so wonderful. You have a man who is charged with something, but he's vindicated as innocent and he's given reward for his faithfulness. That's good, but there are many stories like that. There are plenty of classic novels and, and children's stories about innocent men charged and proven, uh, pr- proven their innocence later or, or rewarded for their faithfulness. This story becomes life-changing when we find out that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but that His death, His death, He tasted on our behalf as well. Remember the question. What's the question here? How do we escape judgment Whose word do we listen to in order to escape judgment? Well, what's the judgment we're trying to escape? From the very beginning in in the book of Genesis, we find out that the judgment for our sin is death. Death is the judgment we're trying to escape. And here we find out that Jesus went through death. Jesus' path to glory was through death that he tasted for everyone that he would pay the penalty for our sin, that he would take the just punishment of death that we deserve. So that if we believe him, 
If we put our trust in Him, we can be united to Him and we can escape death and judgment and receive such a great salvation. That is what is offered to us in Christ. But I don't want us to miss how glorious this actually is. When we talk about the gospel, we often talk about Christ's death on our behalf, offering us life instead of death. And that is true. That is the heart of the gospel. But there's even more here than just that. Jesus, the man, took our death and offered life if we are united to him. But follow carefully what that means. If we are united to Jesus, that means we are with Jesus. That means we are together with Jesus. That means we get what Jesus gets rather than what we deserve. And that means if Jesus is raised up to the right hand of the Father and is ruling on a throne for all eternity, we get to reign with him. In other words, through Jesus, Psalm 8 can now be true of us as well. Through Jesus, we now can be glorified with him and can join him in his rule. And the New Testament says this all over the place. We heard in our assurance of pardon that if we are in Christ, we've been adopted as sons, so we're no longer slaves, but heirs. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that we are heirs. In fact, we are fellow heirs with Christ. What does that mean? We jointly inherit. We're fellow heirs with the man Jesus. Ephesians 2.6 says that God raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places. Perhaps most clearly, 2 Timothy 2. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, of course, there is still a distinction between Jesus, who is himself the Son of God, who accomplished all things and is the King of kings and the ruler of rulers. He is the Lamb of God. And us, who he came and rescued. There's the distinction. But we are being brought up with him to his inheritance. We are his bride. If you think of a king who marries a young woman, that young woman joins him in his rule by virtue of their marriage. He's still the king, but she joins him in it. And we are called the bride of Christ. We are called his body, his brothers and sisters. I was thinking this week of one of those game shows. Maybe you watch game shows and and you have a man up there and he wins $20,000 in a new truck. And, you know, he's up there celebrating his $20,000 in a new truck. And what always happens, his wife comes out of the crowd and is jumping up and down and celebrating with him. He's the one who won, but she inherits with him by virtue of their marriage. And what we're hearing here is this. Jesus is the only Son of God. He is the one on the throne. He is the King of kings to whom judgment belongs. But when we are united to Him by faith, we join Him in His glory and honor. As His bride, we reign with Him through faith in Christ. And so here we have the offer of the gospel. As we listen to Jesus' word, the gospel and the offer of life that he has preached. It offers us an escape from death itself. It offers us eternal glory and fellowship with Jesus and all the hosts of his redeemed. And so you can hear the author of Hebrews saying, we're talking about angels versus Jesus. This does it. This is the final word. He is the one to whom belongs all authority. Judgment belongs to him. He's on the throne. He is the best of all. No one can compare with him, and certainly not the angels. 
Well, before we conclude this morning, let me briefly mention two things by way of application that I don't want us to leave this passage without seeing. First, this passage and and its logic offers a reminder for you and me of who God created us to be as human beings. At creation, God made a sharp distinction between humans and animals. Because unlike animals, men and women are made in the image of God. And they're given a responsibility and a calling and an honor of representing and reflecting God to rule over His creation as His representatives. And while humanity as a whole has, fuf- has failed to fulfill that calling in our sin, Jesus not only fulfills it perfectly, but He's opened a way for us to be what humans were meant to be. As I was thinking of this, I was sort of cueing beauty and the beast in my background. He offers us a way to be truly human again. We can be what humans were meant to be. In Christ, we can fulfill what God created us to do and to be. Now, don't miss, if you are paying attention to our culture around us, don't miss that there is a move to identify people as animals, as further evolved or further advanced animals. And part of this, of course, is an evolutionary move, but part of it is also to throw off the responsibility of being made in God's image. See, what does an animal do? It follows its feelings. It does what it wants. It doesn't exercise self-control. Its goal in life is to get pleasure and avoid bad things to the best that it can. That's what an animal does. And that's what so many around us would like to do. But God has created us for, and now if we're in Christ, He has recreated us for something far more than this. We are images of Him. We are representatives of Him. Our purpose is not to follow our desires. It is to reign and reflect God who is over all. And so as you walk through your schools this week, as you walk through work this week, as you serve, as you volunteer, as you're with your family, as you're with your neighbors, if you are in Christ, you are united to the reigning Christ and you are called to image Him and reflect Him with each word and each action. Is that responsibility a lot greater than just rolling through life doing what we want? Absolutely. Is that honor and that privilege that should cause us to cry out when I think of the works of your hands, O Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you would create us and crown us with glory and honor? Absolutely. Remember who you were created to be and who you have been recreated to be in Christ Jesus as you go through your week. Second, and finally, this passage declares that Jesus is better than the angels. But if we follow the logic of this passage, of course, it's also telling us that Jesus is better than anything else. It's not limited to angels. The world to come is subjected to Him. He tasted death on our behalf so we don't have to. He is crowned with glory and honor unlike anything in anyone else we see around us. He is better than everything else. And as we walk through our week, we need to remember this. We need to remember this in the face of the small things that we place too much emphasis on. You know, the little things that we get worked up about, either super excited about or super frustrated about, even though they're small things. And maybe it's, I have so many assignments in school this week, I can't believe it would all hit this week. 
Maybe it's frustrated by a coworker's attitude or less than stellar productivity and we're frustrated by what that means for us. For some of us here, we need to hear that Jesus is better than anything else because we're sitting here frustrated that your March Madness bracket is ruined. So in comparison to the little things in life, we need to remember that Jesus is better than everything. But of course, we also need to remember this in light of the big things. Some of us are relying on perhaps a certain income level for comfort and security and happiness. And anxiety paralyzes us when that is threatened. Some of us find our hope and our joy in life in the opinions of others and having friends who accept us and think we're cool and we think that's necessary for happiness. Some of us maybe put our hope in our kids and them turning out well and making us look good and our fear and our frustration over our children isn't just for their sake, but it's that we're finding our identity and our hope in them as well. Some of us are facing significant losses and sickness and injury or age that are are keeping us from doing things we want to do and the loss of the things that we want to be able to do is hitting us hard. And all of these are legitimate challenges. But in the face of all of them, we need to hold up these things that we're loving or fearing or finding identity in and remember that Jesus is better than everything else. Jesus, in the glory of Jesus, is far above all these things. Some of you probably met J.G. Zellner, one of our supported missionaries to Montreal. Maybe you met him a couple weeks ago at the missions conference. It was four years ago that he gave the evening sermon for our missions conference, and I still remember the way he preached and talked about the glory of Jesus. And I remember a particular point in his sermon where he just paused. He stopped what he was saying, and he looked out at us, and he said, Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus is so admirable. Jesus is so worthy. What he was doing is pausing and holding up Jesus as better than anything and everything else because he is so great and he is so good and he is so glorious and he has fulfilled all God's plans and is crowned with glory and honor and everything is in subjection to him. Week after week, we're going to hear the author of Hebrews say this. And day after day this week, our hearts need to remember this. Because our hope and our joy and our life depends on Him who is better than everything else. Let's pray. God, when we think of Psalm 8 and its description of your creation of mankind, and we quickly realize that no human being meets that description. There is only one. That one is Jesus Christ. The Son that you sent to live the perfect life to die on our behalf, to rise again and be crowned with glory and honor with everything in subjection to His feet. How glorious it is that His path to glory included tasting death for us and offering us life in union with Him. I pray that this week our trust would be in Him. I pray that this week our hope would be in Him. And I pray that in comparison to all the little things and big things that are going to pop up in our days, that our hearts would remember and trust and believe that Jesus is better than everything else. He is the one who offers escape from judgment and life forever. We thank you 
In Christ's name, amen.